Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Even in the course of a pretty challenging life, most people have many opportunities to experience success, to have good days, pick up small wins, and generally feel like they're on the right track, or at least that they've given things their best shot. And even in the course of a pretty good life, most people experience many small defeats. This can include everything from being a bit late to an obligation with a friend, flubbing a work or school assignment, or even knowing that you'd like someone who maybe doesn't reciprocate your feelings. It can also scale up to big picture experiences where somebody looks around at their life as a whole and goes, wow, this just isn't what I had in mind. One of the most important skills we can develop is the ability to deal with disappointment and cope with failures big and small. That's what we're going to be focusing on today. And to help us do that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, I took a look through our episode archives and I was actually kind of shocked that we've never focused explicitly on this topic before. Obviously an enormous failure. <laughs> a real miss on our part. Yeah, it's one of those things that has run underneath a lot of the conversations that we've had. We've talked about, like, we have an episode titled What to Do When Things End mm. and various forms of kind of dealing with disappointment in small ways. Yeah. But we've never really engaged the idea of failure, which is, for starters, a kind of fraught idea culturally, mm. but is really just so central to so many of the painful experiences that people have. So I'm glad that we're going to be spending a whole episode on it today. Can you say what you mean by failure? Yeah, I, I think that that's a great framing question. For me, a failure is when we feel like we didn't to accomplish something that we wanted to accomplish. We didn't get something we wanted. Sometimes this can be in a kind of objective sense where we're competing for you know, a title in sports is sort of the, the easiest and cleanest way to think about it. It could also be at a more subjective sense where I think a lot of people, they're young, they have a lot of aspirations for life, they feel like they're on a trajectory, and then things just don't quite turn out the way that they wanted things to. And that can feel like this, a sensation that's similar to what we describe as failure. So those are two things that I would kind of highlight. Sometimes failure has almost like a moral dimension to it where you feel like you were bad or you did something wrong or you didn't deliver on your own morals, those might all be aspects to it. What do you think? I think that's right. I think there's the category of failure that is really about skillful correction for the future. There's another category where there's kind of a moral fault and mm -hmm. uh, it's appropriate for a person to have a moral reckoning, some healthy wince of remorse, just enough that's in proportion to what happened and then guides them going forward. I think there are also situations where there's a failure and through no fault of your own, it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. You were trying to grow roses in a parking lot, corn in the Sahara, and the causes and conditions were just not there. Yeah, totally. You, you made a noble effort. I remember going after a young woman in my 20s, uh, full out, and she just wasn't interested. And yet I actually felt okay with the rejection. It wasn't my preference, but I knew I'd really done the best I could. So there's that. And then there's this interesting category I'm thinking where you think you failed, but actually there was no failure. 
Mm. Because perhaps the standard or goal was imposed upon you by other people as there should. Yeah, totally. But actually, yeah, not a true failure really of your own. So it's very, and as you say too, this is a really complicated culture, American culture, Western culture that hyper values individuals of different kinds. And, you know, we, we can definitely be very scornful about people who fall short and take a kind of mm -hmm. schadenfreudish pleasure in how the mighty yeah. have fallen, uh, including people's morbid fascination with celebrity scandals and yeah, totally. the fact that somebody was caught out in some small way 40 years ago, and now everybody's talking about it. So yeah, so anyway, yeah. failure's a big topic. I'm thrilled that we're getting into it. It's just great. Yeah, so we're gonna explore all of that today. But before we get started, I wanna give you a couple of quick reminders. First, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through whatever platform you happen to be listening on right now. Second, if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you'll receive a bunch of bonuses, like very detailed show notes I create where I go into the research behind each episode, ad-free versions of the show, and transcripts of everything that we produce. So to get into our conversation today, I think that dealing with failure, which also has this big disappointment aspect to it, right? Like you didn't win the championship and now you're sad about it is a great proxy for resilience, which we talk about all the time. We mm. wrote a book titled Resilient. Generally, like hard things happen to everybody, the old, old age, disease, and death, all of that. And I think that a good place to start with this conversation is how loss works in the brain and our general sensitivity to those negative loss experiences. And also what tends to sensitize people to losing? Because I have friends who, man, they can fall on their face eight times in a row. And they're like, yeah, I fell down, but you know, I stood up each time and I'm just okay. And then I know people who are incredibly sensitive to any real or perceived failure. Well, from a neurological standpoint, this is a very interesting question. So on the yeah. one hand, it's generally true as a consequence of the brain's negativity bias that we react more to failure than to success. We react more to pain than to pleasure. We react more to loss than to gain, typically. And I remember being interviewed uh, you know, a jillion years ago by a CBS crew on the eve of the Oscars. I got a little 30-second clip, I think, in the show <laughs> uh, after a, a one-hour interview, but that's kind of how it works anyway, and it was good. <laughs> uh, basically about actors who are at the top of the game. They're, you know, they've been nominated for an Oscar and yet they're still obsessing about a negative review they got for some college play they were in 30 years ago. Sure, yeah. So why is that, right? On the one hand, and that's really true. I think there are people who manage that through unhealthy methods as well as healthy ones. One of the unhealthy ways is what's called defensive pessimism, where mm -hmm. you just lower your expectations from the get-go in a way to prevent any kind of disappointment. And that's kind of okay. It's not terribly unhealthy, but it has to do with a certain deliberate deluding of yourself about your actual odds of success and aiming at a low estimate, which can sap motivation as well. A healthier way 
to be less reactive to to failure involves some of the many, many kinds of things we've talked about, including, as you said, different factors of resilience, like healthy self-worth, an internal sense of others who care about you, an internalized um, body memory based on a lot of repetition of many small successes in your life so far that can buffer you against the painful impact of falling short, finally, in one area, let's suppose. So these are things you can build up inside so that you're more able to manage the pain of defeat, the pain of loss, including maybe this is a handoff back to you, Forrest, sense of perspective. I mean, in this mm. life, what are your expectations? Yeah. Supposedly 87% or something of teenagers believe they'll be a professional athlete or a rock star. And <laughs> if that's your expectation, statistically, you're probably going to be disappointed in, you know, 99% of the cases. So it's really useful to have a plan B. And yeah. So what do you think about all that? You know, expectations of success that are just unrealistic, really. Big picture commentary for one second is that we have increasingly created a holding of our lives that lionizes massive, enormous fame. Mm -hmm. Like social media is a great example of this, where we've, we've turned fame into a metric, like how many likes or followers or things like that you have. And we've also democratized fame, where anyone can be famous now in a weird mm. kind of way due to like YouTube, mm. social media, the internet. Fame feels like it's at everybody's fingertips. So therefore, if anyone can be famous, then almost everyone has failed to become famous. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if yeah. we just kind of view it as something where it's like, oh, if you don't have 10,000 followers on Instagram, you're a schmuck. It's like, well, most people don't have 10,000 followers on Instagram. <laughs> so there are a lot of opportunities to feel not successful that we've sort of built into the cake here. And that just layers on top of all of these historical narratives that we have around winners and losers and what that means about people morally. Like it's a mm. character flaw, and that's how we present it, if you haven't achieved all of the things that you've set out to achieve in your life. And I think that that immediately gets to one of the ways to get around experiences of failure or cope with failure more effectively has to do with what's known as attributional style. So this is mm. kind of a psychological term, which is basically that, do you feel like things are happening because of external factors or internal factors? Mm. And what's funny about this is that there are circumstances where it's really healthy to have what's known as an internal attributional style. In other words, you think that stuff happens because of the way that you are. And there are other circumstances where it's more psychologically healthy to be like, stuff is happening to me because of factors that exist out in the world. And there's been some very, very cool research on this, actually. <laughs> and one study found that people who had higher self-esteem and a more positive attributional style and lower socially prescribed perfectionism tended to have greater resilience to experiences of failure. This basically meant that like people who viewed failure as being based on specific events that took place out in the world, as opposed to some inner character defect, tended to be able to bounce back more effectively. You used a phrase there when you reported that research that is, I think, really fertile, which is externalized perfectionism, which then opens up the mm, question mm -hmm. about internalized perfectionism, or more exactly, internalized healthy striving. 
you know, internalized yeah, totally. pursuit of excellence, intrinsic, intrinsic values, intrinsic rewards of, I think about the a saying that I heard from someone who drove a bunch of famous authors around Chicago on book tours, and this person had seen them all come and go, and this person's summary takeaway was, pursue excellence, ignore fame. And I've tried to actually remember that a bit as a kind of personal saying. So the pursuit of excellence for its own sake and being valuable for its own sake so that no matter what the outcome is, you are succeeding at your process goals of intrinsically important values like pursuing excellence, doing your best, showing up, learning from mistakes, bringing your whole heart into it, being sincere, not playing games with others, not being evil, taking into account your impacts on other people. These are ways to be successful along the way that are under your control, that are independent of what the results are, which are affected mm -hmm. by 10,000 factors, most of which are out of your hands. Yeah, yeah. And I would love to spend just a little bit of time here talking about where some of these different ways of being come from, mm -hmm. like the things that tend to lead to somebody being more of a a bounce back, elastic, water off a duck's back kind of person, as opposed to being the kind of person that takes this stuff very, very seriously and where it's really, really painful to even have a, a mild to moderate experience of falling short. And as somebody who spent a big chunk of their clinical practice working with children and families and has an interest in developmental psychology, hmm. my my initial take on this is that there's probably a lot of family of origin stuff going on, but I would love to know what you think about that. Yeah, I think about a mother and a teenage son I interacted with once, and mm. the son was not very motivated around school, and he was an elite gamer. Uh, he was very good at, at playing video games at a potentially professional level, and even as a 14-year-old, he was really interested in that. And I was trying to negotiate a deal, kind of broker an <laughs> arrangement between this kid and his mom in their elite high school. So just getting into this private independent high school, which was extremely selective, was really hard already. Mm -hmm. And then we were kind of negotiating around what would be an acceptable GPA, grade point average for this kid, such that <laughs> as long as he got that GPA, he could spend you know four to five hours a day gaming if, wow. he, if he wanted to. And I kind of proposed, I said, well, basically you have five primary academic classes in any kind of school environment, math, science, English, history, and foreign language, let's say, five. So could you live with four A's and a B? No, she could not live with that. She needed all A's mm. in this elite high school for this kid. And I just shook my head internally. It's not my place to make her do something, but I just knew this would not end well, and it didn't. Because for him, he could just see quite quickly, I can't really anything short of a 4.0 is not gonna satisfy her. I can't really do that, I don't wanna do that. So he, he ended up probably with something closer to a 3.0, just a pure B average, and she lost that opportunity to influence him. So yeah, family of origin, mm. or my family of origin, very classic out of uh, the drama of a gifted child. Maybe mm -hmm. what we ought to do, Forrest, is a pod on five, Great. You you know, I'll pick five or three. You pick five or three something books in psychology broadly. Oh, I would love that. I, I think that's a great yeah, idea. Yeah, do yeah. It. And I, I love this book, by the way, Drama of the Gifted Child. Alice Miller, genius book. For those who want to, who haven't yet read it, very, pretty psychoanalytic. It's got an introduction in three chapters. You can skip the third chapter if you want. 
The first, everything up to that is just gold. And basically the idea is a lot of kids get raised in a way in which they're sort of whipsawed. On the one hand, they get a fair amount of messaging that promotes a kind of grandiosity. You're so smart. You're so talented. You're so beautiful. You know, you're so special in these particular ways. Combined with hypercriticism about any kind of falling short. And even if they actually perform well, it's considered to be a big ho-hum because of course you're great already. And so it's the worst of both, right? It's being raised up too high on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, having lots of experiences of bottoming out. And that is a very promoting of narcissistic neurosis. (laughs) kind of upbringing yeah, totally. that I, you know, I had to kind of work my way out of actually over the years. Uh, so yeah. failure can feel very acute. You can look out there to people who are sitting at the head table and through social comparison, you can both envy them and have contempt for them. You feel mm. it's un, in unjust that they're less capable and talented than you are. And yet they've accessed those higher levels, maybe because they're good at schmoozing or they were lucky or they were good looking or something you think is unfair. And you belong there at the head table. And yet also you have kind of a certain amount of disdain for the people at the head table. Like, why would you want to join that club if you have contempt for the members of it, right? Let alone the president of the club. Anyway, so that's pretty complicated too. And it gets in the mix in terms of success. Yeah. I think that A big thing to take a look at if you're trying to unpack your own story around dealing with failure-based experiences or dealing with disappointment is just the narratives and circumstances that you received when you were really young. If you were brought up in a household where winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, you're probably going to be pretty failure-aversive. If you were heavily punished when you were a kid, when you were seen by your parents to have fallen short, you're probably going to be pretty failure averse. Sometimes kind of like you're describing the case with the the kid and their mom, dad, uh, things kind of swing the other way where a kid sort of feels like, well, look, I'm going to take the stick either way. So I might as well just do whatever I want and not care about it. Like that can absolutely happen too. Um, But a lot of people internalize these narratives that they were brought up under And they really take a very active role in their lives as an adult. Yeah, and then interestingly, just what happens when they get to college? Or what happens? Totally, yeah. You're finally free of the yoke. Yeah, midlife crisis, which for me was around 29, but for some people it's more when they're 39 (laughs) or 49. Truly where they've signed up for a program. They, they bought it. They went to medical school all those years. They did, they ticked all the boxes. They did the right thing. They married the right person. Because if we want to talk about success, success around mate choice and feeling like you failed in mate choice. Big category. Yeah. Ooh, there's a lot of stuff going on there, including cultural influences, you know, yeah. the wishes of okay. your parents and their standards, your, your, especially if you come out of a culture that is more community-oriented than American culture, where kinship systems, extended family, have much more of a role, including literally choosing who you're going to marry for you. Arranged marriages are really, really common still in many, many cultures. So taking all that into account, you know, it's like the talking head song. Maybe we should do a podcast episodes on key 
songs, right? Like, <laughs> what's the talking? You're really pushing your luck here, Dad. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, what's God? Uh, you just you just want to have a Pearl Jam podcast. I know you, Dad. Well, you Pearl just Jam. Have a you know, there's some good ones and, there. Yeah, but like, okay. Well, Talking Heads. What's the one? Is this my life? You know, I can't do any musical memory. You're the musician here. I I am I'm not sure which song you're referring oh, to. Oh, the one but about I'm, I'm following. Um, I'm following. I wake up. I you know, is this my life? Is this my oh, wife? Yeah, I go out. Is this, is this my, my life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh, yeah, like uh -huh. what? Right. So, whose life are you living anyway? Right. Yeah. And yeah, definitely, it's true. We internalize these systems of belief about what we ought to want, and then we even get successful at that. And then we wake up. We look around the big fancy house. We we kind of look at the person lying next to us in our bed and we look at the people we work with and what we do every day and we just go, wow, wow, how did I end up here? And that, that's a really tricky moment. You know, how do you deal with that in a way that's not stupid and destructive? On the other hand, how do you deal with that in a way that honors the little voice of truth and wisdom that's talking to you saying, you know, You've gone down a wrong road and you need to make a major turn before you sure. sit there in your hospital bed in the last day of your life regretting the last 50 years. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. 
The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. My kind of thesis for this conversation is that getting good at failing, getting good at falling down, getting Mm. good at being disappointed, whatever, is an enormously important part of becoming an effective person out in the world. And the better that we can get at relating to failure and having it be a less scary thing for us, the more that we're actually going to end up achieving in our lives. Because it's when we, we take a swing at something where we could potentially fall on our face is generally where the greatest upside lies for us. Like to, mm. to do a little bit of self-disclosure here, because we were talking about things like feeling like you like somebody who doesn't like you in return, yeah. or, or how you go about mate selection, feeling like you failed at that, whatever it might be. Big, big picture issue in people's lives. When I asked Elizabeth to go out on a date for the first time, she was definitely like not the kind of person that I had typically been in relationships with in the past. And that was a very spooky moment for me. And I distinctly remember this kind of moment where I was I was staring at, it was like the screen of my phone or something, and you know, you're considering reaching out to a person. And I was really it, it was a, it was a real like decision. You know, I was thinking about whether or not I was gonna put myself out there in this way. And there was this little part of me that was just like, look, Forrest, you always do this. You always stare at the phone and you don't send the text. So like, damn the torpedoes, man. And one thing led to another, and now we've been in a relationship for about five years. Yeah. And and I was able to do that because I had deconstructed some narratives that I had around failure and around opening up to the possibility mm. that things weren't going to go the way that I wanted them to go. And it was only because I got comfortable with that that I was able to actually send that message. So with all of that as some good context here, one of the things that I've always really appreciated about you, Dad, because you seem to me to be one of those people where falling short is kind of like water off a duck's back because you don't even conceive of it as falling short. You just conceive of it as an opportunity for learning, which is like, what a fantastic bit of jujitsu around it psychologically for starters. Um, but also you put a real value on like iteration speed. Hmm. You know, like if something happens in our business that goes sideways, your whole question is, okay, well, how quickly can we turn this around and get into the next rep and get more practice? At doing this thing. And I was just wondering if you could take a minute to sort of talk about that or how do you do that? How do you relate to things in that way? I'm really touched by that, Forrest. Yeah, totally. I feel like I have kind of a secret life in certain areas uh, that I'm quite aware <laughs> of in, in terms of, you know, how I how we do our business and, and just sort of how I think sure, about yeah. things. So it's kind of startling to have you feedback to me something that you've actually recognized. And yeah. So, totally. Well, so much of life basically is about doing things skillfully and becoming more skillful over time. So, doing things skillfully in all kinds of areas, including in in our important relationships, and becoming more skillful, more effective. You know, increasing the odds of successful goal attainment, to put it a certain way, is a real good value. Okay. So, if that's a value, 
what's going to really help you accomplish that value? It's things like really getting better at learning from falling short, because that's going to help you become more skillful. Another really useful thing is to learn how to enjoy what is on mission that has not been enjoyable. Because if you can find ways to enjoy the things that move you forward, then you're going to be more motivated to go forward with them. And you're going to be more successful at it because you'll have you'll have, you'll be energized along the way. In other words, learning how to like what you haven't liked is really helpful. So getting skillful at helping yourself learn to like things that you haven't particularly liked, which are useful to like, is really helpful along the way. Another thing is, just like you said, exactly what's your speed? What's your iteration speed? And I actually learned this from you, watching you play turn-taking games, because you said there was some kind of term about moves per minute. There's an acronym for it of some kind. Actions per minute, yeah, APM, yeah. Okay, great. So, (laughs) and that's actually advantageous, not just in you know, adversarial situations, but in life in general, how how rapidly can yeah. you learn? If you've got to do certain things, how can you help yourself do them in skillful ways? How to help yourself, I'm going to put it a certain way, become a top performer in your life in general by really emphasizing these elements of what's your learning curve? How motivated can you be to learn? How much can you help yourself enjoy things that are unenjoyable initially, yet are good for you? And how can you speed up your turns per minute, as it were, as you move forward in life? Yeah, and to kind of connect the dots for people here, moments of quote-unquote failure are often major learning opportunities. Mm -hmm. So the more comfortable that we get with failure-based experiences, the more we're going to learn. Because most of the time, learning happens when we're at the edge of our capability. Mm -hmm. Whether you're learning a skill, whether you're learning your own psychology, whatever it might be. We just had a conversation about integrating opposites as being this big Mm -hmm. source of learning for people. People could easily perceive that as a kind of failure. Oh, I didn't do this in the past, so I'm going to feel really bad about myself because I've fallen short in my personal growth journey or whatever. Where in truth, it's an enormous opportunity to grow and change for the better over time. But the only way that you get to the opportunity is if you start getting comfortable with the potential for a failure experience. So I think that to kind of go on to our next uh, next phase here of the conversation, I would like to talk a little bit about how to, in the moment, do some, uh, do some, what's what's the good analogy here? Do, do a little like crisis management when people have gone through a failure experience and they're just sitting in the pain of it. Hmm. And then big picture, how to kind of improve our openness to failure experiences over time. Does that sound good for you? Yeah, I think that first, I think that success is more informative than failure. When you get feedback from people, who tell you what didn't work, that, you know, that doesn't give, tell you very much. Okay, don't do that. Got it. But when people say, this way you said it, or this thing you said in the meeting, or this way that you've approached me as a person is really working for me. I really appreciate it. It's great. I like it a lot. I want more of it. Keep that song going. That is really, really gold. So I just kind of want to say that in general. That said, we do fall short. What do we do then? I think that it kind of helps to recognize first that you've fallen short and not kid yourself. Like, oh, wow, this didn't work. 
That's really an important moment. And having systems, whether it's in your businesses or in your relationships, that allow feedback. I think about spiritual communities I've been in in which the feedback loops were closed because the guru, yeah, the great teacher, totally. yeah, yeah, was not uh, allowing flow of feedback. The organization, the community couldn't learn as a whole. Well, to your point, that person has to be infallible for the, yeah. for the teaching to have merit inside of some of these traditions where you get into some kind of yeah. spooky guru stuff. It's because like any wrongness of the guru becomes a threat to the whole structure. Great point. So it's the classic example of a, of a circumstance where people are not allowed to fail in healthy ways, if that yeah. kind of makes sense. Yeah, right on. Completely true. Where we can't acknowledge failure in healthy ways. Yeah, so paradoxically, setting up feedback systems in your life in which people let you know where you're falling short appropriately not with their, their top spin, not with their prejudices or biases laid on, but in an open kind of way. I think, you know, another thing that's true in our, in our family system and certainly in our, in our business, I'm really eager to cop to my stuff. It was actually mm. helpful for me, a kind of counterintuitive to realize that the fastest way to be successful was to be super open to acknowledging failure paradoxically. Yeah. And totally. to cop to your stuff, including your own personal bit about it. So openness, I, number one, bingo. Number two, really trying to understand what's the basis of the failure. Is it just that the causes and conditions were not auspicious? It just wasn't going to happen. You know, that's really different from feeling like you were unskillful or you had a moral fault. It was just not auspicious mm -hmm. conditions. And maybe the lesson to learn is to plant your seeds in more fertile ground. That's a certain mm -hmm. kind of, other times yeah. you might realize, you know, there were ways you were unskillful. There were things maybe you just had no idea, but now you do. So, okay, you can be more skillful in the future. And other times you look deep inside yourself and you realize, no, there were things inside me that were kind of nasty or lazy or otherwise not good virtuous conduct that I just got a cop to, feel the wince of shame mm -hmm. about, but then, dust myself off, lift my head high, and resolve to be better going forward. So understanding what kind yeah. of a failure it is mm -hmm. is really helpful because then sure. that then takes you down different paths of what to do about it. Yeah, what the circumstances were, were they conducive to your success or not? Totally. To just really focus in on what you were saying at the very end there about experience your experience, dust yourself off. I think that a lot of the time, focusing on the emotional aspects of things early on, whenever we have any kind of painful experience, can be very, very healing and very, very healthy. There's some research that suggests that healthy reflection and self-improvement broadly is tied more to a sensing of our emotional experience rather than the associated cognitive facts. Because right. that cognizing can sometimes wander into what's known as cognitive bypassing, where essentially we try to like think our way around an issue rather than actually engaging with our emotional content. And we've talked on the podcast many, many times about the long-term consequences of mm. dissociating from our emotional experience or just like not giving our body its due a little bit in terms of allowing itself to really complete an emotional cycle. So if you feel really crappy about something, it's really okay to feel really crappy about it. Mm. And I often see friends, um, I'm involved in a number of very competitive hobbies, like competitive dancing and things like that, where friends will, you know, they'll score a little worse in a contest than they wanted to score. Their routine won't do as well as, as they wanted it to do. 
And they'll go through a real period of denial around feeling disappointed and and feeling like they really did want it to do better than it did. Yeah. And it takes a couple of months for them to finally get to a point where they're open to being like, yeah, that was really disappointing for me. And again, the faster that we can get to the acceptance of our own experience, that iteration speed again, the quicker mm. we can exit the cycle of pain around it, I think. Mm. Can you think of a failure you would be willing to talk about? Ooh, okay. And how you, for example, mm. processed your feelings about it and reflected and Ooh. shifted into a different kind of action going forward? Yeah, we've talked about relationships a good bit already. And it's such a mm. universal example that I think that it's a good one to, to use that people might be able to relate to. I had a relationship in my early 20s, which was a pretty short-term relationship. It lasted for about four or five months, something like that. Mm. It was a relationship where the ground was just not not there for it, essentially. I was going through a mm -hmm. bit of a tough time in my life, um, and I certainly wasn't my best self. I made plenty of mistakes, and we exited this relationship. And afterwards, I entered a real ruminatory cycle around it, where I just kind of kept chewing on this four or five month relationship because in a weird way, it became a sort of proxy for so many of the other things that I was struggling with at that moment in time. And what happened to maybe universalize this is all of this other stuff got bound up in this one discrete experience, this one mm. failure experience. It became a metaphor for so much else in my life. And in that way, very much became this kind of like internal moral failing. Yeah, And I had a hard time really just admitting that things hadn't gone well initially. And I was really thinking all the time about, okay, well, why didn't it go well? And what could we have done differently? And so on and so on and so on. And I got really trapped in the minutia of what had happened. I was really cognizing around it. And I think that it was a kind of avoidance coping for me. It was a way where I didn't have to come to grips with what had happened and I, I just kind of kept pushing it away in a lot of different ways so that I didn't have to encounter the reality that this thing had ended and there are these underlying things going on in my life that I'm not super happy about. And I've developed these personality characteristics that I really don't want to have anymore and all mm. of this other stuff. So I just wasn't allowing myself to move toward acceptance of what had happened. And I was extremely narrowly focused on my own individual faults inside of the process. And I think that those two things really increased the half-life of the failure. And what helped me get out of it, for starters, is I, I did a pretty meaningful course of therapy that was pretty darn helpful. But what was largely involved in that, I think, was moving away from the avoidance coping aspects of it. Mm. Uh, allowing myself to feel my feelings, allowing myself to contact my interior in more authentic ways. And then uh, separating the threads of the narrative out from each other. Mm. Because everything was like a big tangled ball inside of my experience. Yeah, My personal flaws, the specific things that had happened with this person, the circumstances of my life at the time, ways in which it was like previous experiences I had had. And, and it was this big tangled mess. 
And over time, I was able to kind of like pull that ball of stuff apart and I was able to look at each of the threads individually. And when I could do that, the problem seemed smaller because rather than one mm. big problem, I had five kind of discrete problems. And I could handle mm. those five discrete problems, but the one big problem was an awful lot to kind of try to slice that particular Gordian knot. So I think that, that was really helpful for me. And that was the way that I kind of moved through that, that experience. What a beautiful example. And thank you. Yeah. I knew I knew just a little bit of what you were going through at the time. And I can now connect a few dots also and, and kind of understand mm -hmm. things, some things better. You know, when we talk about failure, there are some related adjacent issues that come up for people like poor decisions, mm. for example. Like I can look back and at certain things in my own life where it wasn't so much that I failed to achieve a goal, it's that I made a bad decision. So you could say I failed to make a good decision, but I made a bad decision. That that would be an example. Then there are other examples where we didn't see it coming. We, in effect, failed to recognize that a person we thought was trustworthy wasn't, or the person we thought was on our side actually wasn't. And so we were naive or maybe innocent or clueless and kaboom, you know, a big thing landed on us. I mean, to me, there's, these are just kind of adjacent things. I just sort of want to name them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For myself, I can think back on, uh, I guess what I would consider most of my own failures were, one that I'll name here is the failure where you lose your nerve or the failure mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. back yourself, right? and. I can think of kind of an example of a business I had when I was young in a seminar company that really I foolishly walked away from. I mean, there were reasons that were good to walk away from it, but the reasons that determined that I would walk away were mainly bad ones having to do with kind of losing my nerve, you know, not really keeping faith with myself and with a sense of uh, my own capabilities. And that's a very... Boy, powerful kind of failure where you feel like you break yeah. trust, whether it's failure yeah. to keep trust with someone else, maybe that you have a important relationship with, you let them down in some way, or you break trust, you know, you break faith, if you will, uh, with yourself. You don't keep the faith with yourself in some way and back your own play. So maybe that's mm -hmm. something for people to think about to what extent that might be true for them. And then, of course, going forward, What's the takeaway? And one of the takeaways I want to emphasize here as we go forward is a willingness to take risks, right? To risk failure. Uh, if you're not failing some of the time, you're not swinging high enough. I, I used to be a business consultant uh, with smaller businesses. And I remember this high-level painting contractor in San Francisco came to me and we were talking about improving his business and fine-tuning it and so forth. And I asked him, what his acceptance rate was for his bids. And he said, oh, about 20%. And I kind of stared at him and he said, Rick, really, if I'm getting more than 20% of my bids accepted, I know I'm bidding too low. <laughs> That's yeah, really totally, useful way totally. to think yep. about it, you know? Yeah. Exactly. So a willingness to go for it, to take risks, to, to include failure, it's really important, really, really important, especially if in your own background you were punished for failing, you know, in your own family of origin. 
Yeah, I just want to really emphasize what you're saying here for a second, which is that a powerful and kind of counterintuitive way to overcome the fear of failure is by failing more often. A lot of the time, people just fear the things that they don't have practice at. Yeah, You know, the, the things that they don't have a lot of experience with because we haven't been able to internalize the experiences, to really use your language, Dad, uh, the, uh, of things being okay, of things working out. So we only have our conception of how bad something might feel yeah. when it happens, as opposed to a more felt sense of, no, I can really do this. And again, just to emphasize, if you are successful 100% of the time, if you are you know, hitting every pitch thrown your way, that's amazing for starters, like good on you. I don't know anyone who is that way, but all right, maybe you are. But what that really indicates to me is that you're probably not swinging hard enough. You know, yeah. you're, you're not trying to make heavy enough contact with the balls that are coming at you. And that's a lesson I really had to learn for myself. I think that I really played things safe in a lot of ways in my life for a long time because I really was spooked by what would happen if I fell short. Mm. Another thing, as long as we're here, that I think can be really helpful for people as they're experiencing failure and the pain around failure is to really try to add some context to it. Mm. We talked about this a bit in terms of the circumstances, were the external circumstances ripe for success or not? And maybe they just weren't. But also, I mean, you're feeling a lot of pain around it right now, but how bad was this thing really in the course of your life? Mm. Are you going to be thinking about it in a week, a month, a year from now? What are some of the other factors in your life that are really good and useful and supportive? We're survival animals and and we are tuned to experience threat so strongly inside of our system. Right. And failure thousands of years ago when we're in small bands of 15 to 20 people in incredibly harsh circumstances roaming around, you know, the Serengeti or wherever else, failure was fatal most of the time. Yep. So your system is tuned for that degree of fear when you internalize that experience. Like your biology doesn't know that you're just sitting in a meeting and your boss is kind of getting on you because you had a presentation that's running a little bit late, right? Like your your biology can't tell the difference. You know, so it's experiencing that sort of stuff on a similar level to the way that pains were interpreted, again, thousands of years ago in much more harsh circumstances. And I think that that's just a huge takeaway. So that process of deliberately adding context can be really helpful for people. Related to that, in terms of context or framing, really, it's to redefine games into ones you can win at. I, I think about playing tennis mm, when mm-hmm. I was younger. Classic, with people yeah. who are, yeah, better than me. And I just redefined the game to getting one point off them. <laughs> that was good mm-hmm. for me. I didn't need to win a game. I didn't need to win a set, but I just wanted to get one point on them. That was pretty good for yeah. me. Or maybe the game was to improve my backhand, to deliberately just say, okay, I'm going to use this as a chance to get a little better at my backhand. That's a game I can actually win at. And that's a very, very useful principle for people in general. Totally. The last thing I'll just maybe add is about the whole notion of success and failure altogether. Mm. For one, think of all the parables that have to do with, you know, something happens and we think it's good news and then it turns out to be bad news and then something else happens that we think is bad news, but yet it turns out to be good news over and over and over again. And I... Think of this line from Shanti Deva, this great Tibetan adept thousand or so years ago, who said, basically, when I succeed, there will be people who criticize me. And when I fail, there will be people who praise me. So 
you know, I what's the point in really what's the point? <laughs> being yeah, motivated totally. about what what the audience is doing? You know, I have to judge for myself, really. Yeah, and you really, if you think very broadly, in terms of the ways in which reality really is a whole bunch of little currents all swirling together in very dynamic, fluid, and intertwining kinds of ways. Really, that's the truth of it. We're just one of those many currents. And, right, we, we accomplish some things. We don't accomplish other things. We do what we can in, these, in this life. Almost no one will be remembered in a thousand years. Uh, almost no one will be remembered in a hundred years. So what are your goals? What are your fundamental overarching values? And that's where I think the key takeaways bring it back to intrinsic goals and process goals that are under your actual influence. It's not, yes, go after the outcome, go after the result. It's nice to win the championship. It's nice to have money, right? It's nice to end up with a particular person. Fine, go after these results. But really what's most, most, most important are process goals meanwhile. And meanwhile, can you be sincere? Mm. Can you succeed at being sincere? Yeah. Can you succeed at being compassionate? Can you succeed at being a decent human being? Can you succeed at having a work ethic? Just trying. Mm. So many people just yeah. phone it in, even in their intimate relationships. They just kind of phone it in. They don't bring a work ethic to it. What? You know? Can you succeed at these things? And if you can see, yeah, and if you totally. can succeed at these things, you will be truly successful. Yeah, I love that. And I think that it's so, it, it's such a good indicator here that we began the conversation with you asking me a little tongue in cheek, but also I think usefully. So Forrest, what do you mean by failure? Yeah. And now here we are at the end going basically, all right, here are all of these ways that the pain associated with failure you can relate to differently or okay, a tactic for when you're really in the emotional experience of it, how to kind of unpin yourself for it, or, oh, changing our stories about it. But we're closing with, well, what is, who decides what a failure is even, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's just such a great takeaway for this territory as, as a whole, is to really take a look at the stories that we tell ourselves about what success is and about what failure means. Mm. And to really get clear about where those stories are coming from, and are those the narratives that we actually want to hold in our life? Or do we maybe want to build some different ones over time? Mm, beautiful. Yeah, I think that that's a great note to end today's conversation on. And today we focused on how we can cope better with failure and learn to deal with disappointment. Rick began the conversation with a really interesting question that he offered kind of off the cuff. It wasn't actually in our prepared notes for what we were going to talk about today, which is, well, what do you mean, Forrest, by the word failure? And that comment, that question, became kind of a framing device for the episode as a whole. Because the truth is, a lot of the time we relate to failure because we think we're supposed to feel bad about something. And then we can get into a whole process of unpinning where that belief comes from. Sometimes we authentically feel like we've fallen short of our own standards. And that's definitely a very painful feeling. But a lot of the time, what's happened is that we've internalized certain narratives about the way that we're supposed to be or the way that things are supposed to go. 
And what we've actually done is just not align ourselves with those broader social or cultural narratives. One person's falling short is another person's learning opportunity. And there's a clear teaching in that. A lot of our experience of failure comes back to how we relate to failure broadly. We talked for a little while about what might contribute to somebody being really failure-sensitive versus somebody else who's a little bit more water off a duck's back. And there are a number of possible contributors to this. A big one to take a look at is what was going on in your family of origin. Were you raised under circumstances where you were made to feel really bad if you fell short of some perceived standard? On the other hand, did you get to a point when you were a kid where you felt like people were going to kind of give you a hard time no matter what you did, so your performance didn't really matter that much? Each of these experiences can lead to different kinds of relationships with the idea of and experience of falling short. If you have one of these internalized models, it isn't your fault. These are things that just happen to you. But when you become aware of these processes, it becomes so much easier to do something about them. We spent a lot of the conversation talking about two things. First of all, in the moment, what can you do so that failure feels less bad when it does inevitably visit you? And then second, how can we reframe our relationship with the perception of falling short so that it's less uncomfortable for us when it does happen. To recap a couple of big takeaways, first, feel your feelings. Most of the time, one of the worst ways to deal with an emotional experience is by pushing it away. The things that we push down tend to inevitably return. So let yourself be honest about it. If something hurt, be like, yeah, this hurt, at least internally. You don't have to say that to other people, but inside of your own experience, be authentic about it. Also, be careful about cognitive bypassing, which is essentially trying to think your way around a problem. Then, avoid various kinds of avoidance coping. I described my own story of avoidance coping around a painful failure-based experience, and a lot of the time when we experience discomfort, it's very, very natural to try to push it away, right? We don't want that pain to be close to us. And this is just a form of avoidance, which tends to actually increase the stress that we experience over time. Another thing we can do is we can look at the narratives we have related to failure, and particularly whether or not we attribute failure to a kind of internal moral failing or to things that are going on around us out in the world. And of course, we want to be real about this. If we've fallen short in terms of our own behavior, it's really important to take responsibility for that. But at the same time, we have a lot of very powerful narratives about failure in the culture, and it's really easy for people to internalize external experiences of failure or falling short as being based on internal moral failings that they possess. Sometimes things don't work out just because the causes and conditions for them externally are not there. Maybe you're trying to fish in a parking lot rather than at the end of a pier. And that's definitely a behavior to look at, but the fact that you didn't catch any fish isn't necessarily your fault. Then we can go full Rick and we can reframe failure, broadly speaking, as a kind of learning opportunity. Some useful questions to ask yourself might be things like, what responsibility is appropriate for you to take and what isn't? What were the factors that led to this outcome? How could things be different? in the future? And what can you do so that things don't turn out this way again? 
Then add context. How bad was the experience really? What other factors are present in your life that are good or useful or supportive of you? In general, it can be really helpful to resist the voice in the head that tells us that this painful experience is the most painful experience ever and we should definitely be freaking out right now. Finally, a kind of counterintuitive way to relate to failure more healthily can by actually taking more risks and getting closer to the plausible experience of falling short. We fear things that we don't understand, and we fear things that we don't have personal experience with. And a lot of people who fear failure were brought up in circumstances where they were either heavily punished for it, or they were never given the opportunity to fall short in safe ways. If that's true for you, maybe you fear failure, or maybe failure is really painful for you when it comes along, just because you don't have a lot of practice with it. We miss all of the shots that we don't take in life. And if you're making contact with every pitch that is thrown your way, it's possible that you're just not swinging hard enough. I can keep on going with the sports metaphors here, but I think you know what I mean at this point. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to the podcast through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review that really does help us out. And hey, you can tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can join us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. For the cost of just a cup or two of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses from me in return. So until next time, thanks for listening.